All right, good morning. Welcome to another week of our being scattered together so close to the end, so close to the finish line, and so thank you for your faithfulness gathering this way today. Uh, We're going to do here what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible there, Bible app, whatever it is, turn now to our passage today in Genesis 39. We're continuing in this series through the life of Joseph, meant for good, Joseph. And uh, we're now in verse, or sorry, chapter 39. We didn't hit the end of 37 last time. As Joseph heads off over the horizon, we're told at the end of chapter 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So this little detail, which now we pick up here in our passage today. So look with me, Genesis 39, beginning of verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. That's going to be important throughout our passage today. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. I mean, I'm not at all trying to compare our jobs with slavery in any way, but if, if Joseph can do this as a slave, how much more would we want it to be said of us, that, that as Christian employees in our businesses, in our places of work, whatever it is, that, that it would be said our employers would know that the blessing of God was on their place of business because of us. May that be so. Let's continue. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Uh-uh. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that, she had, that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he, this is Potiphar, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left the garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And then she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, servant who you have brought among us, he came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. It's not listed here, but obviously, but, but think of this. This is now the second time Joseph has had his garment stripped off him and it's been used to deceive other people. Verse 19, and as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Note it doesn't say who his anger was kindled against. We just assume it's Joseph, but just just put a post-it note there. 
And Joseph's master took him and put him, into, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive right into this. Uh, Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word? Open our eyes, our, our hearts, our ears to receive what it is that you want to show us. God, accomplish the work that you want to accomplish through this, I pray, and, and, and use this in our lives to grow us and build us, shape us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, maybe it was the fact that I was 11 years old. Uh, maybe it was the fact that uh, I had been on that trip to Universal Studios Hollywood where they did that cowboy stunt show and, and guys would get shot out of windows and, and fall onto these safety mats. It's probably some combination of both. But when one of my friends made a successful 12, 13-foot jump from the balcony in our elementary school gymnasium onto the high jump mats down below on the floor, well, Suddenly, the temptation for all of us was far too great to resist, to try the same feat for ourselves. We, we had to try it, too. And though, although, like, yeah, no, there was no rule posted on the wall saying, hey, hey, no jumping off the balcony. They probably figured that maybe that should be something we don't need to say. Even though there was no rule posted saying that, yeah, we, 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 we all knew this was super dangerous. Like, we could be killed, paralyzed, whatever it is, and, and probably not something we should do. So it wasn't a surprise at all when our principal came into the gym, literally as we were jumping off, and, and caught us in the act, hauled us all into his office. It wasn't, it wasn't, nobody was arguing, being like, why, why can't, like, we, we knew. We knew. And although you would think that 35 years later, um, the temptation to participate in activities that, that put my life and my health in immediate danger, that they would have decreased by now, yeah, um, yeah. just a, a quick conversation with my family, uh, a certain church members would, would reveal otherwise. Um, yeah, they would reveal that that's not necessarily the, the case, which, listen, I, I think as it relates to our passage here that we just finished reading this morning, that we're looking at here, which I think reveals a really common misconception that we often have about maturity in general and spiritual maturity in particular, namely... That maturity should equal a gradual decrease in temptations and struggles that we experience in life. That if I'm really mature, or, or spiritually mature especially, that I should experience less temptation in life. I should be less tempted by things, go through less struggles, when the reality is, at least as far as in my own experience, the way I understand it, maturity has far more to do with the way that we are grown and built as we resist temptation as we endure struggles than it does with any decrease in their occurrence. It's a reality, I think, illustrated for us perfectly and very simply in the life of my friend Emily Rolfe, who, who along with working as a nurse down here in the Lower Mainland, also trains to compete in the CrossFit Games. Clearly, you can see she is uh, a woman who is uh, very much stronger and fit than than a lot of people, most of us here anyway, and, and, and what Emily will tell you is that whether it's resisting the temptation to indulge in certain foods, whether it's enduring some of the, the grueling workouts she has to perform twice a day, six days a week when she's getting close to competition times, rather than being something to avoid, 
rather than being something she wants to experience less and less, what she understands is that that struggle, that difficulty that she has to go through, that's the thing that grows her, that, that builds her, actually, the thing that daily moves her closer towards her goal. Which is something really important for us to remember as we continue looking through the life of Joseph uh, through the summer months here in this series, Meant for Good, because although, yes, Joseph, he, he had, he had just gone through an unbelievable physical and emotional struggle by being sold into slavery at the hands of his own brothers. Yeah, that doesn't mean for a moment that the good work God had begun in Joseph's life was now con- concluded, just because he'd unstuck him from the beginner stage and removed his coat of many colors doesn't mean God's done. No, no, no. God, God had much more good work to do both in Joseph's life as well as through Joseph's life. And so in order to, to, to get him and bring him to that very good end, God continued to form Joseph. God continued to, to build up his spiritual maturity muscle, if you will, through these various challenges and, and, and life circumstances that Joseph had to go through. And so Rather than being a sign of God's absence, rather than being a sign of God's judgment or punishment of Joseph, the continued trials and temptations, difficulties Joseph had to endure were a sign, as chapter 39 repeatedly tells us, that the Lord was with him. And we'll look at three temptations that Joseph had to endure in particular from our passage today. The the temptation toward pride, the temptation to lust, and the temptation to despair. Just those three, pride, lust and despair. But, but as it relates to why any of this matters to us in, in our lives today, 2021, isn't it in the context of these very same things? Isn't it in the context of trials, temptations, struggles, and difficulties that we too can so often feel abandoned, so often feel like God is, is punishing us, like he's left us, like he's not, he's not with us, and yet As Joseph's story goes on, he now puts on today the coat of a servant. I think we're going to see and learn through the example of his life that just the opposite is true. We'll learn that for ourselves. And so let's just jump into this. If you you close your Bible, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with, with me to our passage? Genesis 39, beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me as we continue to grow, I pray, in both our understanding of and appreciation for the work of God, the the good work of God in the life of his children. Yes, yes, work that is sometimes difficult, uh, hard, costly, many times incomprehensible to our minds, but is still always meant for our good. Okay, so let's do this. Let's look first at the way Joseph grows under this first temptation in our passage with the temptation towards pride. A temptation toward pride, and this is perhaps just a bit more subtle in the text, but when you consider the, the Joseph's beginnings there in verse 1, look there, as this newly acquired slave in Potiphar's house to the place of the attendant, the overseer over everything in Potiphar's house that he grows up to, that he works towards in verse 6, I don't think it's difficult at all to imagine how Joseph could have so easily grown to become conceited and and prideful as a result of that. I think that that could have certainly been the case as a result of Joseph's privileged upbringing because remember, honoring himself, that was was what Joseph was all too familiar with, right? That that was his MO, to to honor himself all through life. But I think it's especially also could, could have been the case because uh, as a result of how his brothers had treated him, remember? Selling him off into slavery, hating him. Because think about this, uh, maybe you've seen this too, proving people wrong 
Someone who said, you can't do it, you're never going to make it. Sometimes proving people wrong when they've said things like that can become this all-consuming, intoxicating passion of life so that when you accomplish, you, you can become this incredibly self-absorbed person. Like, I, I was down in the gutter, I pulled myself up. So all these things, it could have been so easy for Joseph to become prideful. And yet, in these first verses of chapter 39, but really throughout the chapter, we hear both that the Lord was with Joseph and that it was the Lord that caused all Joseph did to succeed. And while, yeah, I get it, that's, that's the author's commentary on Joseph's life. He's kind of looking on the outside and telling us about Joseph's life. He also presents that commentary in such a way as to lead the reader to understand this was also Joseph's understanding of what was happening as well. This is how Joseph understood how he had risen to favor in Potiphar's house, that it was the Lord blessing him. It was the Lord with him, and he did all that and brought him to this place. And that wasn't his own skill. It wasn't his charm, his corporate or social ladder-climbing abilities. It was the Lord who had done these things in his life. Which, man, think about that. Something's different, right? Already, something has radically changed in Joseph's life from that first day when he was sold into slavery by his brothers until today, hasn't it? Something radically different. Like, do you see it too? He's not the same person. Like, no, 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 he's not yet all that he will become, but neither is he any longer the same prideful, self-absorbed, multicolored coat-wearing youth that he once was. Once the, the favor of his father led him to give into the temptation to pride freely. Now, as he is led to put on the coat of a servant, the favor of his heavenly father now leads him to resist temptation and as a result, grow instead in humility. He doesn't take ownership for these things. He sees the Lord is the one who's, who's brought me to this place. You, you see a similar, a similar humble transformation, for instance, in the life of the Apostle Paul. We read about there in Philippians 3, he talks about, he, he chronicles all these awards and, and, and degrees and accomplishments that he has and he's built up that would lead him to be this, this great, really honored person in the eyes of his fellow Jews, and yet he says, as he's come to know Christ, he says, I now count all those achievements and accomplishments as rubbish, as, as landfill, in comparison, he says, with the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and listen, sharing in his sufferings. Radical transformation from this prideful person to now this humble understanding that, that seeking Christ as his greatest treasure, uh, even in my own life, while, yeah, not having anywhere near the accomplishments of Joseph or Paul under my belt, those of you who know my testimony, those of you who know my, my, my past as I've shared over the years, will know that I too once walked in that same kind of pride and arrogance that Joseph used to walk in before God in his mercy unstuck me from the beginner stage and stripped me of my own coat, prideful coat of many colors. But the thing I want you to begin to see is that whether we're talking about Joseph or Paul or, or even me, the consistent factor in each one of those stories is that in order to free us from pride, in order to grow us and teach us humility in Christ, God did not remove all the temptations to pride. He didn't remove all opportunities to be prideful in our lives in order to accomplish that. Instead, rather, he gave us the eyes to see what the source of all those things that we used to claim for ourselves truly was, who it was that was enabling us, who it was that was empowering us to accomplish those things. So we would step away from pride and, and, and instead acknowledge God as the source of those things. So that as a result, the temptation to, to pride that we once freely walked in, freely gave in, gave into, now became 
the tool by which God trains us, by which he, he grows us more and more deeply in our spiritual formation. And it could be the same in your life. As we understand, hey, who is it that, that, that gave me the skills and abilities that I have? Who caused me to be born here and in this time period and all these things? It was God. I didn't have anything to do with that. He's the one who gets the glory. He's the one who deserves all the praise. And, and it helps us to step away and resist the temptation to pride, to take that ownership ourselves, to direct it back to the one to whom it truly belongs. Okay, lots more we could say there, but that's the temptation to pride. The next temptation God grows Joseph under is the temptation to lust. The temptation to lust. So look with me now at the second half of verse 6. The author now shifts the scene from focusing on Joseph's favor and status in Potiphar's house to his appearance. Noting this, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, which even if you don't know the story of Joseph yet is a description that well, it stands out to us, and, and not in a good way. Uh, um, apparently, there, there's only one other place in the Old Testament where, where the, the, these terms like these are used to describe someone's appearance. And surprise, surprise, it's Joseph's mother, Rachel. She, she's described with those exact same terms. So obviously, I mean, what's saying Joseph got his mama's looks, okay? Joseph got his mama's looks, which that's great. Good for you. Uh, but, but in this case, anyway, yeah, it's not great. It, it's, it's not a good thing. It's bad, in fact, because it ends up drawing the gaze and the attention of Potiphar's wife, who we're told not just once, but repeatedly tries to entice Joseph to sleep with her. And if you know this story already, if you've heard this in the past, grew up in church, whatever, you, you know that this part of Joseph's story from the passage we're looking at today, this is actually kind of one of the go-to passages when people want to talk about lust and, and, and resisting temptation to lust, uh, Joseph's exemplary example of, of, of refusing her advances and, and fleeing temptation when, when he's put in a place where he can't escape, he, he, he gives us this example. So this is kind of one of the go-to texts that people use. But one of the things, as it relates to what we're looking at here, that I, I want to suggest to you is that these temptations are not at all, they're not all working in isolation from one another. They're, they're kind of overlapping, working together. And so I see it this way. I, I believe that the growth that God first brought about in Joseph's life as it relates to his pride is ultimately the thing that enables him then to resist and be grown under this next temptation to lust. That first work bleeds into this next work. For Think about it. If Joseph had continued in his prideful previous beginner ways of, of pride and entitlement and all these things, isn't it easy to see how he might have been much more inclined to see Potiphar's wife as just one more part of Potiphar's household that he was in charge of, that was in his charge? Absolutely. Then com combine that with the fact, historically, that, that slaves being taken advantage of sexually was, was a very common occurrence, along with the fact his master's wife is literally commanding him to have sex with her in the, in the, the plainest, most unambiguous terms. Like, like We read this, like, that she said, lie with me. This sounds like something out of a Jane Austen novel. And yet, man, in the Hebrew, it's much more stark and plain. Literally, the, the force of what she's saying is just sex now. Like, that, that's the force of what she's saying to him. So combine all those things together, and what ends up being really surprising in the end is actually that Joseph doesn't sleep with her. It's, it's amazing that, that, that he refuses her advances. That becomes the surprising part, given all that. And yet, as the second half of verse 9 reveals, what enabled Joseph to stand firm, to be grown under this temptation now, is that although he wears the coat of a servant in Potiphar's house, Joseph knows that the one to whom he is ultimately a servant is the Lord. 
The one to whom he is ultimately a servant is the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As, as he responds to her by saying, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, he sees all, yes, I'm, Potiphar is my master, but God is my true master. And I believe that that's exactly the same thing that will enable you and I to stand against the temptation to lust as well in your life and in mine. Namely, to have decided and, and really to regularly re-decide beforehand who it is that we serve. Who it is. Because, man, the, the, the voice of Potiphar's wife there isn't that just the voice of lust in our own lives. If you've experienced this temptation in your life, that, that the voice of lust says, you are mine. Yes, I'm going to offer you pleasure in return, but, but you belong to me. You're, you are my possession. It tries to tell you that, that you belong to it. And yet, so, so we need to be able to decide before those temptations come ahead of time, no, no, who is it that really I belong to? Who do I really serve? Whose child am I truly? And again, it's a, it's a bit subtle in the text, but notice Joseph, as he responds each time to her advances, he's not trying to decide in the moment, okay, who is it that I truly serve? Who, who, who am I truly a servant of? No. What you see in each of Joseph's refusals to the temptation to lust or to indulge in lust himself is a predetermined conviction that although Potiphar may hold the, the receipt for his purchase, the God who made him and who is daily remaking him is his true master and his true Lord. He's made that decision ahead of time, and so he knows, no, I, I could never do this thing. He's not trying to decide in the moment. And listen, although, yeah, okay, this is an extreme example. I'd like, I'd like to believe by God's grace, none of us like, being hunted sexually by our boss's wife is not going to be the experience of temptation to lust that pretty much any of us are going to experience. No, the reality is still the majority of us will still experience this temptation to one degree or another. I know some people experience it more strongly, some maybe not that much, but we'll all experience it to some degree. But the thing to always remember is that yeah, but while yes, we, we, we do cooperate with God in bringing about the good work that he began in us to completion, right? Like there, there are activities and practices and places and relationships we might need to consider cutting off. We might need to consider fleeing from like Joseph did. In order to, as it relates to the temptation to lust, yes, God's plan to form you spiritually, God's plan to grow your spiritual muscle, once again, is not going to involve removing you from all temptation ever to lust again. He's not going to cut off or kill your sexual desire so that you don't have to lust anymore. He's not going to do that. Rather, the way he's going to grow you is by having you put in the reps, if you will, by, of learning to submit those desires, submit those passions whenever they do come in the presence of temptation to lust. Submit all those things to the one to whom our lives truly belong. Remember to whom it is we truly belong. Lust is not our master. Jesus is. Okay, that's temptation to pride, the temptation to lust. The last temptation where we see Joseph grown and shaped under is the temptation to despair. The temptation to despair. This, uh, as one commentator noted, may be the, the hardest temptation to endure of all. The, the, the one hardest to remain under long enough to truly be grown by it of all. And where we see this difficult temptation come for Joseph is in what we're shown as the result of his faithful obedience under this temptation. What was the result that we see in, in, in the remainder of this passage? What's, what's the result for Joseph 
as he stands against temptation to lust, refuses uh, his boss's wife's uh, advances. What, what's the result? He, well, he's framed. He's framed, he's lied about, he's wrongfully accused, stripped of his position of honor and put in prison. That's, that's the result for Joseph. Now, now, we know Joseph's innocent. God knows Joseph's innocent. And I don't know if I've ever seen this before in the past, but there's even a good indication that Potiphar himself believes Joseph is innocent. Because think about it. Uh, a slave caught sexually assaulting his master's wife, like that guy's going to be executed on the spot. And yet instead, we see Joseph being put into prison. So there's a good indication that even Potiphar also believes that Joseph is innocent. But just, just think about the injustice of this. Think about the, the, the profoundly painful, unequal payment of this. Not only did Joseph not do the thing he's accused of, he actually did the exact opposite of it. He remained faithful under the temptation to lust. He honored his master. He honored God. He even honored Potiphar's wife by, by not exposing her repeated advances. He did everything right. He did everything right. And abandonment, humiliation, and imprisonment are what he receives in return. It was centuries later when, when King David would write of a similarly despairing experience himself in Psalm 73 when he talks about how, how he has seen those with no regard for God prospering and enjoying life while he's suffering and struggling as he follows God. And he, he cries out, all in vain have I kept my hands clean and washed my hands in innocence. And if you've ever walked through an experience even remotely related to any of these experiences yourself in life, maybe you stood up for a harassed coworker or, or refused to be involved in illegal activities, you did the right thing and still lost your job. Maybe, maybe you remained faithful in, in a difficult, hard marriage and your spouse still divorced you. Maybe you walked alongside a friend through family or relational mental health issues through a really hard season in their life, and then once they were good and, and in a good place again, they just dropped you. And, and, and doing all of those things, seeking to honor God and serve Him, seeking to be obedient to what you see God is calling you to, and those things still happen to you, then you know the temptation to despair that Joseph is feeling in this moment. You've asked some of the same questions Joseph is undoubtedly wrestling with as he sits now this evening chained to a wall in prison. Like, this is what I get for faithfulness to God. This is how I'm repaid and rewarded for doing what's right. Now, we, we know because we have the book of Genesis that the simple description there that we have of the prison that Joseph was put in as, quote, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, we know that that small detail actually means everything as it relates to what's going to happen next in Joseph's life. And, and as Tim Keller beautifully notes, listen, if these awful things hadn't happened to him, he, he, this is Joseph, might have risen up to be high in Potiphar's house, but he never would have become the prince of Egypt. He never would have been able to actually save his family, and thousands of others too. And yet, if I can state the obvious to you without offending you, Joseph hasn't read the book of Genesis. He, he, he hadn't read Genesis. He, he was just living it. And it was hard. 
it, 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 it was, it's unjust, it's painful. And although, yeah, there seemed to be a little bit of light, a little bit of redemption following his brother's betrayal and selling him into slavery, he's risen to this place. All of a sudden, bam, that, that light from above is, is gone again. Now he's sitting there in a prison cell. God seems nowhere to be found. The temptation to despair is so incredibly strong. And yet, what I believe God wants to say to you if that's the despairing place that you're living in right now as well, is don't give up. Don't give in to the temptation to despair today. Don't, don't, don't listen to its lies that want to tell you that I've left you, that I've given up on you, that I'm not still involved in, 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 in leading you towards something good, completing that good work. I am with you in the very same way that I was with Joseph, says God. I'm with you right now, right in this moment. And will continue to be. And, and, and in the same way Joseph hadn't read Genesis, says God, neither have you read your story that I've written. Neither have you seen nor do you know all that I'm still working in and through you either. And just as we saw with the temptation to pride and to lust here again, so too the temptation to despair. Rather than freeing us from ever having to experience that temptation, ever having to go through that struggle, God instead uses those struggles, those times of spiritual dryness, those, those times of, of where the sky seems dark, God seems distant, that, that kind of dark night of the soul moment. God uses those things as instruments in his hands to form and conform us more and more into the image of his Son. He is with us and he is using those experiences to build and grow us and to bring to completion the good work that he has uniquely planned for each one of his children. Well, hopefully you can see, although they involved Joseph's responses to both positive as well as negative experiences, none of the temptations that Joseph had to go through were easy by any stretch of the imagination. They, they, they weren't. Easy, And yet, what I pray you can also see is that the results of having gone through them, having to walk through those things in the end, as we continue to read, you, you'll see that the, the, the result was absolutely good. God was working good in Joseph's life, even through these hard things. Because that's the thing. No, no, I, I just, spoiler alert, spiritual formation is not a day spa. Okay, it's not a day spa with, with no struggle or difficulty whatsoever. You know, the hardest thing you experience is a painful wax. That spiritual formation is not a day spa. But listen, neither is spiritual formation a prisoner of war camp filled with meaningless suffering that has no purpose. It's not that either. But what I just love, 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 love about what we're shown in our passage that we're looking at here today is just, it's just the real, raw honesty of it. This is not the Disney hallmark, every cloud has a silver lining kind of version of the story where it softens the details but then leaves us feeling like the Bible has absolutely no relevance to, to real life struggles. No, this is the real life history of a man named Joseph that acknowledges that life can feel so incredibly hard sometimes. It can feel unjust and unfair that you can do everything right and life can still go incredibly bad. And in the midst of that, God can seem like he's nowhere to be found and you're going to feel abandoned and you're going to feel like giving up. It's just showing us like this is, that's, that's a real experience and it doesn't mean that God's left you and it doesn't mean that God's not with you. Because what is also beautifully revealed is the reality of divine purpose behind that hard, painful, despairing reality. It's showing us that too, you see? 
that although everything looks bad, negative, spinning out of control externally for Joseph, internally, Joseph is being shaped. He is being formed. He is being prepared in a way that he could not even imagine, which he never would have believed if you had told him in the moment. He couldn't see it. He didn't have Genesis. He couldn't couldn't see the end. He just was going through it. And maybe, just maybe, we're given the story of Joseph to always remind us that the very same reality of God's presence and his purpose is running underneath and parallel to the painful, difficult circumstances in your life and in mine as well. Second Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul, who also came to understand this hopeful reality himself, says it this way, quote, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, which for Paul was stonings and, and beatings and imprisonment and shipwrecks, this light momentary, uh, light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Paul could say that. He could say that because what Paul was trusting in the midst of his own suffering, in the midst of his own temptation and all these difficulties, and and what Joseph's life prefigures, what he was trusting in was a God who also knew what it was to wear the coat of a servant. A God who also knew what it was to suffer unjustly, who would resist temptation and remain faithful even in his moments of greatest weakness, and yet was still wrongfully accused, abandoned, suffered as a result. Even if he did everything right, truly did everything right, and yet as a result of enduring that temptation, even to the point of death, accomplished the salvation of many. As the prophet Isaiah reminds us so powerfully of our faithful suffering servant, Jesus Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And yet, as Isaiah goes on to remind us, Jesus, just like Joseph, his suffering was not without purpose and plan. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And therefore, listen, hear me. Whatever temptation, whatever temptation you may be struggling under this very day, whatever grief or injustice you may be bearing at this very moment, my prayer for all of us in that, in light of what we've looked at here today in the life of Joseph, you may have light shine once again into that place of darkness. (laughs) The truth of what God's purpose and plan shine into that and, and that you would know and believe and have your faith build up today as you remember what the author of Hebrews reminds us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He knows and understands your suffering. He's been there. He knows exactly how to comfort and walk alongside you, and yet he's also, as we're seeing, he's not just with you. He's also working out his good plan in you. He has a good purpose. This is not without purpose what we're walking through. So that then, as he concludes, let them we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy, receive mercy and find grace and help in every time of need. Oh, God, help us to do this. Amen. Amen. I want to give us a 
closing benediction, then we'll be dismissed for the day. I think this is so fitting. Receive this benediction now. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in the grace and the peace of Christ.